This podcast is sponsored by Reformation Heritage Books and the new release by author Jonathan Landry Cruz, The Christian's True Identity, What It Means to Be in Christ. There's more at heritagebooks.org and at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The experimental uh, approach to science in the in the 17th century as new methods are being developed, uh, one of the things that comes out of that is a renewed interest in Epicurean atomism. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. James Dolezal. James, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Looking forward to a, a repeat uh, guest that's been a couple of years since we've had him and looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah, I couldn't believe in looking at the records that it had been, it was 2019 when we last spoke with Todd Rester. Dr. Rester is Associate Professor of Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary just outside of Philadelphia. And we're here to talk with him again about Petrus van Maastricht's uh, volume three of the theoretical practical theology. Um, and the subject of that volume is the works of God and the fall of man. So Todd, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here with both of you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, it's it's our delight. And, and we did speak to you about volume two of uh, theoretical practical theology in 2019. But for listeners who may not have heard those interviews, can you provide just a brief summary of who Petrus van Maastricht was and the significance of, of these works and why they stand out among many Reformed theological contributions in the 17th century? I'd be glad to. Petrus van Maastricht was a Dutch Reformed pastor and theologian in the late 17th century. Um, his, he's primarily known for his work at the University of Utrecht. He served in other universities around Europe besides there. Um, he was a Hebraist, and he was deeply immersed in the text, but at the same time, he thought that all of, um, all of Scripture should be applied to all of life, which was a common theme of the, what's known as the Nautera Reformancy, or the Dutch Further Reformation. Um, and so Maastricht is a, is a wonderful intermediary figure. He was picked up outside of the Netherlands by such um, colonial theologians as Jonathan Edwards, who recommended him for his method, I believe, um, to others. Maastricht and Edwards don't always agree, but there's uh, what I find interesting in, in Edwards' usage of Maastricht and reference to him is he really appreciated Maastricht's fourfold emphasis. So in this theological work, what you get out of Maastricht is a, a exegetical section, then you get a positive doctrinal development, then you get what you might call a negative doctrinal development. That is, if the text commits us to believe these things, then these other things must be denied. And so in that, you get a positive and negative development through what is this doctrine? What does it require? And then the final part of it shows you the application aspect for pastors um, and also other people, but for pastors especially, because what happens is Maastricht is firmly committed to the idea that the text should move to doctrine and doctrine should move to practice. He says in, elsewhere in his best method of preaching, that if you do not arrive at practice, uh, you're stultifying your hearers. Uh, so he was a he was a major voice in the in the late 17th century among the Dutch Reformed. He's also somewhat of a gazetteer. Uh, so if you want to get an overview of some of the issues that are going on in the late 17th century, 
Uh, Maastricht is somewhat of a key to that. He can provide uh, a, a variety of approaches to the different theologians and different uh, confessional traditions at, at the same time, as well as different philosophies. And particularly that fourfold method is sort of his, that's his brand in a certain sense. Uh, Turretin gives us an elenctic theology, but elenctics or polemics are just one sort of piece of the puzzle for Van Maastricht's work. And obviously it's much more voluminous uh, than Turretin's uh, elenctic theology. Uh, in fact, you've now matched Turretin for volume. We have him in three volumes in English. You've just released the third of a projected seven uh, for Van Maastricht. Yes. Uh, Turretin laments the fact that he didn't get to handle the, 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 the practical aspect. He was trying to beat his students to press. Um, his students were going to publish his material without him, and he felt rushed. He tells, he tells readers in the preface, actually, if you want a better theology than mine, go to uh, Samuel Marasius, um, which is an interesting point. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that the, the method you've seen in these books, whether it's Turidan or Maastricht, is something that developed in the universities, the early modern academies. Turidan is at pains for the reader to know that these were questions that were designed for seminary students in their exams. I think that's a helpful reminder to us that um, all of these theologians at some level wanted to see this cross the pulpit for practice, even though it may not have always appeared in their in their scholastic uh, texts. Um, there's definitely an aspect of pastoral engagement. But you're right, the, the three volumes that we have with, with Maastricht is, uh, puts us somewhere around the 800,000 word mark um, for have, uh, what we have in Maastricht. Um, the total volume uh, word count for all seven volumes, I estimate somewhere around 1.6 to 1.7 million. And you'll be happy to know I have a sabbatical coming up when, when we uh, hope to have more of the uh, volume uh, five, six, and seven pushed into editing. Volume four is currently finishing editing, and we hope to have that one um, in print by uh, fourth quarter. So that's on the, that's on the person of Christ. Um, about 18 chapters and about 260,000 words. That's great. Let's talk about this volume. Uh, the main sort of overarching are sort of providence, creation, uh, and then also uh, the fall into sin. And it's more than 600 pages in translation uh, as you've given it to us. And so let's focus in on a couple areas. And one that stood out to me, and I thought maybe you could say something about this, is that he had? He seems to have an extraordinarily lengthy, by comparison, treatment of angels and demons, particularly uh, on good angels and demons. And this is an, an area of interest of my own. Uh, I teach a course on this. I try to uh, develop my thinking on this. I find a lot of help in the medievals. The reform tend to be a little more scant in their discussions. In Calvin, he exhibits a, an extraordinarily seeming to me low interest in the question of angels and demons, but you get to Ben Maastricht. And I was, I opened up the volume when it arrived, Todd, hopeful. This is where he's going to discuss angels and fallen angels. And Sure enough, he serves up a, a, a comparatively lengthy treatise um, from a Reformed theologian on this. And so I wanted to, and, and I will also add this, very uh, conversant with medieval subtleties, which I, I found very helpful, actually. Um, and, and I've always thought, why don't Reformed theologians discuss it this way? And it turns out that there's one who does, and it's Maastricht. Uh, but why is that? I mean, why in a why in the maybe you could say something to this in terms of the context. You discuss it a little bit in the intro about 
sort of the the you know the the goings on with witchcraft trials and modernity that he's interacting with how might that sort of play into this kind of comparatively larger treatment of angels and demons i think uh when you get to the question of angels and demons in the late 17th century, uh, it's, it, it, becomes a, it becomes a flashpoint for a variety of issues. Uh, the first one that I would start with is uh, in, the, in the realm of the natural sciences. The experimental uh, approach to science in the, in the 17th century as new methods are being developed and as ancient philosophies are being tested empirically, uh, one of the things that comes out of that is a renewed interest in Epicurean atomism. Um, and so one of the elements that comes into the play here is, is, is questions about what is the nature of the universe? What is the nature of matter? Uh, is all that exists only material? And so there's a, there's a push from the empirical sciences in this period uh, about the existence of, of the spiritual. Um, so you have a, a scientific basis for this discussion, whether you're dealing with mechanistic philosophers such as Gassendi and others. Um, but then you also get into philosophical issues. Um, for example, um, Rene Descartes will divide all things either into thought or extension. And under the thought category, um, he has a spectrum where human beings and God participate in, in somewhat of a similar view of being. It's just different gradations of being. Um, so then you get into a question about uh, what, is the, what is the creator-creature distinction? What is the nature of creation? Uh, all of these sorts of questions. By the time you get to the late 18th, the late, late 17th century and moving into the 18th century, in the Netherlands, you have a group of reformed theologians who have been influenced by various Cartesian modes of thought. And some of those are coming across by raising the question whether or not the language about demons and the language about angels is just figurative. Uh, we, you cannot underestimate the impact of Spinoza and his approach to the scriptures in the Netherlands in the late 17th century. Um, most And Spinoza denies angels and demons altogether. That's correct. That's right. And, and what, what you also get out of Spinoza, though, is a vociferous attack on the nature of scripture. Uh, so if you, in, in this context, so just the, what, we've, what we've said so far, uh, the, the, the changes in the approach towards science, changes in philosophy, and also uh, some pretty vociferous philosophical and even civil and political attacks. Uh, Spinoza is not just aiming at a philosophical change. He wants a change in the, re in the relationship between church state um, in the Netherlands. And so that raises all kinds of questions as well. But in the process, he critiques uh, the Old Testament quite heavily. And there's almost a moment where you get the sense that he's saying, and what I've said about the Old Testament, you could apply to the new. Um, he won't go that far because that would have gotten him kicked out of the Netherlands. But uh, he makes it sound like he's only picking on the Jews um, and Judaism. Um, so one of the things to realize is, is that in this period, there's, you know, the science, the philosophy, and then biblical criticism and changes in church-state relations. Now, in that context of the late 1680s and, and the early 1690s, uh, a case arises with Balthazar Becker, who writes a work called The World Bewitched. That's the translation of the title. He writes it in Dutch. It gets translated into French, German, and English. And what he basically says is that the that demons and angels are states of mind. 
And um, so what happens is, is that Maastricht takes up this issue because of a very hot topic within his own ecclesiastical court system. Uh, Maastricht files briefs and other things against Becker and his views. So there's an, there's a, there's an internal argument in the Dutch reformed environment, but it, it touches on issues that would spread even to the colonies. Um, the, the, the witchcraft trials in New England uh, some of the textbooks that they were using for what are rules of evidence in a witchcraft trial actually are taken from um, some of the parameters given by Heisbertus Futsius at yeah. Utrecht. So you've you've got a lot of who is uh, Maastricht's his, professor, his own he, teacher. He is Futsius is one of Maastricht's professors at uh, Utrecht, and um, another one that was of interest here is um, Johannes Hornbeck. Uh, I would say that you know, uh, Maastricht owes. Uh, a great debt to Futsius, but perhaps a greater debt to his old pastor, Johannes Hornbeck, who was also his professor at Utrecht. Um, so he just has more to he's going to have more to say about angels and demons, partly because of the, just a polemical context that's going on. He couldn't, let's say it another way, he couldn't not talk about it. Right. Um, and to say nothing would be to say a lot. I find just a, a just an observation on this. What I love about him, he's this is what Ben Maastricht's doing. Even some of the earlier 17th century guys aren't. He's he's engaging with some of the early knock-on effects of Enlightenment philosophy and mechanistic materialism, and it's forcing him. It seems to me as I'm reading, it, it's it's like forcing him to reiterate things that medievals used to talk about. Early reform don't talk about as much, and then suddenly he's got to come back and kind of retrench and dig in on that older, more robust view, particularly in this area. That's true. I mean, one of the medieval questions, um, you know, sometimes there's a couple of, uh, there's a couple of things that make its way into English, which actually demonstrate how little we know of the, of the questions, but demonstrate how important these questions were. You may, you, you know, if you hear the expression, it doesn't make an iota's bit of difference. If you're familiar with the with the debates with Arius, you know that iota makes yeah. a very big difference. All the difference. That makes all the difference. Well, a similar point, you've heard some people say, well, how many angels can dance on the head of the pen? You know, as if that's uh, just a, an unimportant question. And the, the reason that that question is significant is because the question about angels and the space they occupy physically, how can a spirit occupy space? And how can a spirit have local presence and how can a spirit have have omnipresence so we, we talk about the spirit of god we talk about omnipresence when we talk about the spirit of angels we talk about a spirit with local presence and only has local presence and so then the question is is what is the nature of limits in a local space isn't that a physical characteristic so what's going on is is they're really trying to bang out what does it mean for an angel to be a local spirit and that has implications for how you think about the relationship between God and creation, how you think about spirits. Um, one of the other issues is what is the what is the what does it mean for a human being to have body and soul? You know, if if Becker is right and and soulish and spiritual discussions are really just physical states of mind, um, then that recalibrates the whole discussion about what is the nature of human existence, what is the nature of salvation. Um, what what is sin? Um, one little pebble, as it were, can kick down boulders um, in the whole process, and that's part of what's going on. Um, a larger workout on this point, if you're interested in the philosophical side of things, Maastricht has a point by point refutation of what he thinks the theological issues are, 
He has a point-by-point refutation of Christopher Wittick and more specifically uh, Rene Descartes in his lovely entitled book, uh, The Gangrene of the Cartesian Innovations. Um, it's, his, it's his gangrena. Um, that's not in translation as of yet. And it's a two-volume work on here's all the implications of Cartesianism and how it's affecting theology. Becker is downstream of all of that. So one way to look at it is the reason Maastricht is getting into these high philosophical questions is because they're having very practical implications in the pew. When people, um, when people reconstitute their understanding of angels and demons or reconstitute their understandings of body, soul, it changes the way they understand grace. It changes the way they understand sin. And as a pastor and theologian, that is of utmost importance. Um, that's of utmost importance for not just pastors, but also for uh, congregants. So that's the, that's the reason why this question about the nature of creation is so important for him. Uh, the reader is going to notice, wow, this is a lot more of the tale about um, late 17th century arguments about creation and how this works than I'm, I've, I've perhaps ever encountered. Hang in there is what I would say on that section. Maybe on that point, Jonathan, you wanted to ask uh, just maybe as a, as a second kind of wrap up on this about create about uh, science and faith and how that works out. So I'll let you. Yeah, Todd, in your introduction, you mentioned that that Maastricht is instructive for us on the relationship between faith and science, as it's often uh, termed today. And yet he's also a geocentrist in his understanding of cosmology. So what is it about his work that is helpful and instructive with respect to our uh, discussions regarding faith and science? Well, I think the important point to realize is, is yes, it's true. He's a geocentrist. Um, heliocentrism was a theory that was put forward and uh, in that time period of the 16th, 17th century. And um, Maastricht is critiquing it because, first of all, it doesn't, it seems to fly in the face of scripture. And second, he also knows the science well enough to know that the issue of stellar parallax has not been demonstrated yet. Um, if the Earth moves around the sun, then if you're doing astronomical um, observations of the stars, the s- constellation should move. That was basically the, that's basically one of the critiques of the heliocentric view. Uh, what's not in play for these folks is they don't realize how big the universe actually is. But the issue of stellar parallax isn't demonstrated until in the 1720s. Uh, so the, 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 one of the points to make here is that Maastricht has, is, is, has the scriptures in front of him. He has a scientific theory that's being put forward, a scientific theory that has not been proven or has not been demonstrated. And he is not convinced um, that this has been done responsibly or well. And so what's happening is people are using that, um, that theory as a wedge against the authority and nature of scripture. So he's seeing that cut in both ways. So the question about you know, whether or not all truth is God's truth, he would affirm that. Uh, and he would talk about how the, the nature of these questions on, um, on the, of these materialists is impacting theology in that regard. I think that's an important way to put it, is when he goes into lengthy discussion of the views of Brahe, you've got someone who takes, has a scripture principle, look, the, on, on face value, this, this uh, denigrates scripture. Second, this is a theory that's totally concocted out of human observation. It hasn't been proven and it, fly, it, it also seems to mitigate against scripture. And because it hasn't been proven, uh, there, are, there are other legitimate explanations in the period 
that could equally be applicable. And so that's, he takes uh, in some ways a very strong stance on scripture. And on other ways, he says, the science isn't in on this yet. You know, and the conclusions you're drawing from your science about the nature of scripture is wrong. So it's, it's a bit of a counterfactual, but what you're saying is, had he lived 100, 150 years later, he might have weighed those factors out differently. And the fact that he is working with both is instructive for us. Yes. I mean, there's a, there's a side of it where um, there's a side of it where it's, he's very clear in his scripture convictions and principles. He's also very clear that this is an unproven theory. And so part of his advice here is, is don't let your understanding of the scriptures be spun as it were by whatever scientific theory comes down the pike. Um, You have to weigh these things against scripture and you have to weigh these things against, uh, you know, on a lesser note, uh, um, you also have to weigh it in terms of where, where the research and other things are at. Um, He doesn't put it that explicitly, but when you see that, when you see what he's doing by using Brahe as part of his argumentation, um, he's, he's going back to the point, this is not a proven theory. Todd, I wish we had more time because there's so much more in this volume. We've really only touched on a couple of features of it, but thank you so much for all your work. Uh, it's immense. It's been an immense benefit to us and, and I think to the church more broadly. And, uh, and thanks for your time today as well. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Um, I'm glad to represent the, the work of the Dutch Reformed Translation Society and and uh, Reformation Heritage Books. There's a lot of teams that go into putting this together. It's not just one person, I'm sure, as you know. Um, so I'm thankful for all the work that's been done, and we look forward to putting these out and hope it's uh, of use and service to the church. And, and you know, Jonathan, that point that you're bringing up about faith and science is, is really fascinating. That latter part about, you know, it's possible, you know, and I would say it that way, it's possible Maastricht would have changed his view within 100 years. Yeah, yeah. But the fact of the matter is, is that um, Galileo's view wasn't proven. Right. And so frequently today, uh, this whole period gets maligned precisely because, yeah. oh, what the science has proven. Yes. Later. Right. At the time, right. it was not proven. I would have right. been a holdout geocentrist as long as possible. <laughs> well, I and, and, the I last mean, guy. And I, but I think I think at the same time, I think that I think, James, that's right. Uh, that that the, the issue of Scripture is what's in front of him. We don't spin our views just because a new theory has appeared. Um, there's something to it about, okay, what does the scriptures require of us? And the, the, thing that, the thing that Galileo was being used to do was to support all kinds of um, atomistic theories and all sorts of statements about atheism. So the idea was, is if the earth revolves around the sun, um, contrary to the scriptures, see, atheism. So there's much, it's not so much about the, 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 the science on one hand, it's actually about what's being done with the science. Right. Um, and maybe that's the instructive point for today, you know? But there's also a, a very different, in my, in my judgment, a very different kind of discourse happening because today it's all absolutized. It's you either believe the science or you don't. And there's almost no, and I'm not even talking about COVID, but I just- There's mean, no room for you know, suspended judgment. Yeah, there's no room for saying, is it a theory or isn't it a theory? Um, it's sort of, as soon as it's presented, it is a proven fact. 
Right. I, that's, and that's a wonderful point because I thought the scientific theory was about hypothesis being tested and retested and retested. Right, right. Retested. Well, you yeah. thought wrong, Todd. <laughs> well, but, but I mean, there was space. That, the, the thing to, 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 to bear in mind, though, is there was space then to, to push on that that's a little different from our modern Western mm-hmm. context. Um, where now the discussion between faith and science is, you know, which do you believe? Um, and it's sort of put that starkly. Yeah, it's put a, it's put creedily, isn't it? The last point in this yeah. book that's also interesting too is the issue of sin, um, the fall of creation and uh, the fall of man, and its apostasy from the covenant of, as Maastricht says, the covenant of nature um, raises all kinds of wonderful questions about what it, how do we understand what it is that sin is doing, and out of that, you know, one of the things that we've met, we've lost in our modern culture of cancel culture. And uh, there is no forgiveness. There is no, there is no improvement. There's, an, there's, they, there's a loss of a doctrine of total depravity. And as a result, there's also a loss of, the do, of, of any sort of forgiveness. So the irony is, is that the, the getting rid of the category of sin was supposed to make us all feel better uh, therapeutically. And the result is, is that we have standards of perfection to which no one can attain. So the new false righteousness of this age is actually is precisely due to the fact that we've denied the do- our culture has denied the doctrine of sin, um, and that's a place where Maastricht is, I think is really helpful here on this doctrine of sin, because it shows us uh, what is needful for redemption and for healing and for true change. Um, so this the last part of this book on the fall of man, in some ways it's old hat to uh, to reform theologians, but in another way, I think we really need to lean into that as Christians, the doctrine of sin actually opens up a doctrine of grace. And what we've lost by losing the doctrine of sin in our culture, civilly, politically, ethically, is we also have lost the doctrine of grace. Uh, There is no forgiveness. And you see that what people call cancel culture, you can almost draw a direct line to it. It's a culture that doesn't have a place for sin. And when you do sin, there's no, there's no redemption. Um, so it's an interesting, uh, there's an interesting, I think there's much more to be said about that, but well, gentlemen, we've, we've gone more than you probably wanted, well, but, um, thank you. No, Todd. Todd, thanks thank for you. giving us your time. It's, it's good to be with you. We should do this again soon. Well, James, with a volume this size, it's always hard to isolate a couple of topics, but, um, Todd, of course, did a great job putting his finger on some significant ones. Uh, I want to ask you this question. Who would you recommend read this book? First of all, I think pastors. And this is the reason why I think it's going to, it's going to tighten up your discussion uh, with a sort of exactitude that the pulpit needs. And the Um, method is important there too. The way he does it is Yeah, that's right. Because he's going to start with exegesis and he's going, this is a true Christian theology where he is taking his point of departure from the scriptures, uh, giving you kind of a, a doctrinal synthesis, but then reflecting on very, the, I think the sections on disputed questions, so to speak, uh, where he's working that out um, are important. There's also something that Maastricht's doing that's a little different than some other 17th century folk, which is that he's he's kind of interacting with the beginnings of enlightenment theory and philosophy and science in a way that might connect in some familiarity more to the world in which modern pastors currently, you know, are living now. 
Um, but I, lay readers who have an interest in this will, they'll, they'll know what they're getting into. I think pastors, though, this is, I guess I'd put it this way, this is not Dabney, this is not Hodge, uh, this is not that 19th, 20th century uh, reform tradition, although it probably has some overlap with Bovink a bit. Uh, it's a bit of a different thought world, uh, and one that has a, I especially just reading the section on angels and demons, was impressed with how, what an affinity he has with a medieval angelology as a response to materialistic skepticism that was kind of emerging out of the Enlightenment, that he kind of revisits something much older than the Reformation itself. Uh, and I think that, I think that modern uh, pastors and interested Christians are going to benefit from that immensely. Well, these volumes are a rich treasure trove, and if you are interested in entering to win a copy of Volume 3, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a place there for you to enter your information for that possibility. It's also available from our friends at RHB. This is a big book. Sometimes we say these are small books. You can pick it up. You can read it in the afternoon. This is not one of those. This is a big book. It's in some ways a technical book. It really may often feel like a little bit of a foreign country, but well worth your time if you have the time uh, to put into it. Please write us if you have questions or if you have issues you'd like us to discuss. Also, if you're able to donate, you can do that at placefortruth.org or at alliancenet.org and pass this podcast along to those whom you think may be helped by it. Rate and review the podcast if you have the opportunity to do that. That helps us spread the word. And thank you, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Identity. It's a word we hear quite often these days. Seems like people are having a harder time than ever figuring out just who they are. Could they be searching in the wrong places? Author Jonathan Landry Cruz offers a fresh and truly radical answer to the important question of who you are in his new book, The Christian's True Identity, What It Means to Be in Christ. If you're seeking your identity in relationships, career, gender expression, or some other circumstances, then this book is for you. In his always winsome way, Jonathan shows you what the Bible has to say about everything you need for a lasting, fulfilling identity, one that is found outside of you and in Christ. The Christian's True Identity, What It Means to Be in Christ, from Reformation Heritage Books, glorifying God and strengthening His church. Visit heritagebooks.org. That's heritagebooks.org.